0: Here with Dr. Jennifer Frey. She's a professor at the University of South Carolina, the Gamecocks. Your husband's a professor of philosophy. You have uh, your wife and mother. And um, I wanted to ask you about your work on happiness. And, and you've studied Aristotle and Thomas and literature, and you teach courses in philosophy. And first, I just wanted to start with what is happiness? How do we describe it? not talking so much about how to get there yet, but just what is happiness?
1: Right. So I'm a philosopher. Um, so whenever you ask me any question, I'm going to draw like 10,000 distinctions and <laughs> <in> qualifications because <laughs> that's, that's what I do. But um, so when we think about happiness, we can think about it um, in a substantive way or in a more formal way. And I'm going to start with the more formal way, um, and then we can... Uh, work our way down to the more substantive material conception. Um, but formally, um, most people, most contemporary people who call themselves happiness theorists or happiness experts, and most of these people are in economics or psychology or some kind of social science, um, they think of happiness as a subjective condition that you can be in, okay? so. It's an individual subjective condition. And there are lots of different ways you could think about this condition. Um, Some people think it's just a condition where you feel all and only pleasure. So those would be the hedonists, right? Some people think, well, that's a little bit simplistic. Um, Mm -hmm. You also have to have uh, certain beliefs. Um, You have to have a certain kind of emotional life. So one prevailing view is that happiness is just a positive emotional condition, right, where you have a preponderance of positive versus negative emotions. I kind of so,
0: call that bourgeoisie peace, happiness.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. Sometimes that's all I want. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, so so basically, it just boils down to: Do you feel good? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, and and when they do their happiness surveys, right, mm-hmm. um, and and all of this. Um, is based on individual self reports. So any psychologist or social scientist who gives you a bunch of data on happiness, all they're looking at, for the most part, are um, self reports. So they'll they'll give you a piece of paper and they'll be like, "Well, how happy did you, how happy would you describe yourself generally?" And then it's like a series of um, emojis. You know, it's uh-huh. like sad emoji, oh, sort of like calm emoji. Kind of happy emoji, ecstatic emoji, like you pick your emoji, um, which I hope strikes you as kind of crude (laughs) because um, this is very crude. One, because self-reports are notoriously unreliable. People are very bad at reporting their own subjective condition. Um,
0: Do they skew one way or the other?
1: Oh yeah, everybody thinks they're happy. Oh, in, okay. in, in the face of, like, all evidence to the contrary. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: um,
1: but so, yes, people over-report their own happiness for a variety of complicated psychological reasons. Um, but then the main problem, even even if we were better self-reporters, if we were more honest about ourselves to ourselves and others, um, even then, this, this, I think, is a, is a very bad view. Um, and if we think about it just philosophically, um, I think it's pretty clear that if that's all that happiness is, then it just can't be that important, right? Because, um, for instance, um, you can easily imagine that someone who is a very bad person might be in a positive <laughs> subjective condition, right? It's not impossible to imagine this. All they have to do is wall themselves off from reality, right? Um, not pay attention to all of the harm and suffering that they're causing through their bad activity or just uh, focus totally on themselves. Um, And there was a philosopher at Harvard um, in the 90s, his name was Robert Nozick, and he wrote this paper and it was a rejection of hedonism. But he had this interesting thought experiment, which I think is very valuable for thinking about happiness and what its actual nature must be. So he's, he, this, his thought experiment went like this. Look, imagine that you could hook yourself up into a pleasure machine, okay? And once you go inside the machine, you will, feel, you will experience, as if it were real, all and only pleasures. Also, you will not know that you're in a pleasure machine. Mm -hmm. So for you, it's going to seem like real life, your brain is being manipulated so that you only have positive experiences. Um, And he poses the question to his reader, would you get in that machine? And now I think most people um, will want to answer this, no, right, I would not get into the machine. And the question is why, right? Um, so all that the thought experiment does is it gets you to reflect on your reasons why you would or would not go mm-hmm. into this machine. Because um, I now, guess we have a concept
0: yeah. fundamentally just like there's a state of happiness that we know that it's not just interior feeling, but it's like that our whole life is moving towards something good or there's some fun- fundamental thing that even.
1: You know, yeah, so there are two things you said there that yeah. I think are so important. Yeah. One is you referenced your whole life. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you're in the pleasure machine, you're not really Mm -hmm. living a life, right? Right. Um, You're just being stimulated externally so as to feel like you're living a life. Um, And then secondly, you said, we're moving towards some real good. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what's also missing from Mm -hmm. the contemporary subjectivist account of happiness. Um, There is nothing exterior that really matters to this picture, right? It's all an internal condition. And so there's no objectivity, it's all subjective. Um, And that means that it's been divorced from the good. It's been divorced from reality. And that is what the pleasure machine thought experiment really brings out, is the fact that subjectivism is divorced from reality. And the fact is that we are human creatures. Um, we want to be happy. <clears throat> we all want to be happy. This is just a fact. Um, but the question is, what sort of life, right, yeah. is actually the happy life, right? right? Um, not a happy condition I may or may not be in at any given point, but a happy life, a good life. And when we start to think about that way, we go back to the tradition of thinking of happiness that goes all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, um, but of course is um, beautifully theorized by Thomas Aquinas. And that is thinking of happiness in terms of an activity, right, of the whole person. And if you think about um, your life as a kind of ongoing activity, which surely it is, then the happy life will be, you know, the highest sort of thing that humans can do. Aquinas acknowledges that, of course, it has a subjective component. He talks about happiness in terms of fulfillment, satisfaction, right? Well, satisfaction is a a subjectively experienced thing. We all know what it feels to be fulfilled or Mm -hmm. satisfied. Um, But for Aquinas, happiness isn't mere satisfaction, it's the kind of satisfaction that you get, right, when you are living an excellent life. That is to say, when you are truly in communion with the greatest good. Um, So now, if we're thinking about it that way, and I haven't said, I'm still at a completely formal level, right, I haven't said anything about what this is, but I, but now I'm already thinking that, okay, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a certain kind of activity. What kind? The kind that's going to completely satisfy me as a human person. Um, and that would be an activity that gets me the highest sort of goods I can have as a human person. So whatever yeah. that is, that's going to be happiness.
0: Yeah. And I like you know, connecting it to i just heard somebody comment i forgot what the source was but you know as americans we have fascinations with the mafia godfather and i watched this documentary <laughs> on giuliani's takedown of the five families you know mm-hmm. in new york and uh and somebody in all that said you know these guys never when when they say what they're proud of in their life uh, they'll say something besides all their mob work. Like even they knew fundamentally, like the killing, the brutality, mm-hmm. and even the power. They would refer something else. Like they were taking care of their family, or mm-hmm. you know. And I was like, I was struck by this. That's so true. I mean, it's presented in Hollywood as this glamorous, mm-hmm. powerful thing, but I think fundamentally, we just—that's our experience, I guess—is that when we. Are about these greater things and after the greater goods and realize the passingness of these hedonistic pleasures and stuff that that's i'm not even proud of that you know right. at the end of life right right yeah.
1: yeah well i think um there is some truth to the old saying you know that the older you are the wiser you are mm-hmm. and that is that the older you get um the more you realize that um the sort of fleeting things, which are typically the things that when yeah. you're older don't don't really matter to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, they don't really sustain you anymore. Um, you don't even have to be especially virtuous or to have lived a good life to see that having a lot of power doesn't right. actually make you happy. Having yeah. a lot of wealth yeah. doesn't actually make you happy and is more likely to make you miserable. Yeah. <laughs> um, having these things that, you know... Are our goods. So when Aquinas, um, Aquinas in the treatise on happiness, um, after he says formally, like, how we should think about happiness, then he goes through, like, candidates. Well, what would it be? Would it be pleasure? Would it be wealth? Would it be power? Would it be honor? Mm-hmm. Um, and n- n- it's none of those things, uh-huh. right? Why? Because none of those things completely satisfy us as human beings, right? A lot of the things that people think are the most important things turn out to be what Aquinas would call instrumental goods. Mm. So their value isn't that they're good in themselves, but they're good for something else. So mm. like wealth is a classic example of an instrumental good. Nobody just wants money. Um, the people screws back, people want life. money. <laughs> right, well, I mean, I suppose especially disordered people might <laughs> want money as an end in itself, but m- most people want money because they want other stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, or, um, but then take the case of something like, um, or powers, like that too, Aquinas thinks. Um, because like power in and of itself, like it's, power is only good in so far as you can use it for something. And so far yeah. as you can exercise your power. So then yeah. the question is, well, for what am I exercising my power, right? Is it just for me? Uh-huh. Is it just for, so that I can accumulate more mm. and more power? Well, suppose that you have all the power, then what? Mm-hmm. I mean, right? What are you going to do with that? Yeah. What's your plan? Yeah. Um and um you know, he rejects honor because honor precarious. Um, it is precarious. So one of the things, I suppose I haven't mentioned this yet, um is that Aquinas also distinguishes between um imperfect and perfect happiness. Um and yeah. he thinks that perfect happiness um we can only get um after we die is sort of like a a funny feature of this view um, (laughs) that you have to die in order to be perfectly happy. But that's only because he thinks that perfect happiness is something that once attained can never be lost. Um, And so he thinks um, the only candidate for perfect happiness is communion with God um, because God is the only thing. So Aquinas doesn't think that any created good Um, can satisfy us. Why? Well, because we are finite creatures with infinite capacities. So we have these two spiritual capacities, capacity of intellect and a capacity of will, and they reach out to the infinite. So no finite good will satisfy them. Um, And so he thinks of perfect happiness as communion with God because communion with God Once you know God, once you see God face to face, there's literally like nothing left for you to know. Right. (laughs) Right? You now know on everything. Yeah. Um, Because everything to be known is contained in God. And And that God is
0: infinite. So there's like infinite, we just keep growing knowledge and love of God. You know, it's not like a static, we don't get bored with God.
1: That's right. You wouldn't be bored with God. And then also, if we think about the will, is the capacity to. Um, realize the good or have communion with the good, um, again, all finite goods are limited. And Mm -hmm. so even the best finite good you can think of um, is not going to completely satisfy you. And, um, you know, if you think about um, St. Augustine's Confessions, right, is sort of the story of Augustine trying to deal with his restless heart, which is like, Augustine's never satisfied. And you, and you read it and you're like, why not? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like you're, like you're so smart, you're so successful, you have all this stuff. Um, because nothing created is ever going to satisfy this restless heart. Right. And it's only until Augustine realizes that, yeah. that he's able to like live the sort of life um and
0: that's where like with in america we're materialistic very consumeristic we're trying to throw in material things to satisfy a deeper spiritual hunger that we have i think
1: yeah i think i mean you know humans are mysterious strange creatures but really if you want to figure out any human being you just have to realize that they're trying to be happy and probably failing
0: (laughs) (laughs) and we should say too that because i was listening to another podcast and you point this out i think and his treatment on virtues begins with happiness that's right yeah. so
1: happiness is the primary concept um so a virtue is that which is necessary to attain yeah. your happiness um or now let's you're...
0: just repeat that because we forget that that yeah. virtue is the path of happiness like happiness motivates us on mm-hmm. a natural level certainly and then if you want to be happy you want to be virtuous that's right. Because in our culture we, we say the opposite all the time that you know, I always say like the villains get the best lines, they get the most beautiful actors to play this, you know. And it looks so attractive. You know, they're doing these terrible things, but they're cool and all this. Mm-hmm. And there's some kind of weird celebration of evil like that would give us happiness.
1: The there's, glittering vices. Yeah. I mean, I think that I mean look. Evil is attractive, that's uh-huh. the thing. And Aquinas was very well aware of this. Mm-hmm. So in his, um, in his treatment on, on vice, um, I think one of his more extensive treatments is the de malo, the disputed questions on evil. Um, and he, he, Aquinas says the following of the vicious person, and even even of the devil, right? Every vice is ordered to some real good, right? Um, so, look, we we are by nature, aimed at the good, right? right? And so are the higher spiritual yeah. creatures, right? Yeah. Any creature with intellect and will is just aimed at the good. So,, um, even the vicious person is trying to get the good, mm-hmm. but they're just they're messing up, right? Mm-hmm. Because what they're they're not seeing, they're not after the highest good, in a reasonable way. Right. Um, so, if you think about um, even something like Aquinas' treatment of the fall of the devil,
0: yeah,
1: um, which is, is sort of a very mysterious thing. How could the highest angel, right, who has an intellect that far surpasses anything you and I could imagine, has no passions? So it's not like mm-hmm. it's not like that got messed up or something. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have a um, fallen and angel and and nature. isn't ignorant. Yeah. yeah. How is it that this? creature chooses against God. Mm. And Aquinas's answer is, well, he was proud, which means that he preferred his own excellence or glory, mm. right, to submission to God's will and the recognition of the need for God's grace. So that was offensive to him, right? Um, and
0: also envy right from scripture does he talk about that
1: so aquinas doesn't talk about it so much in terms of envy but pride and that's because you know aquinas thinks that pride is the root of all sin yeah um now why would he think that he thinks that because he thinks that every sin is inordinate self-love yeah all of them um, all of them at the end of the day boil down to inordinate self-love, which means that you choose your own good over the highest common good. What's the highest common good? It's life with God. Um, so for Aquinas, um, you know, there's a hierarchy of goods. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, a lot of sin is just choosing a lesser good, yeah. right? And losing sight of the real goal, the real highest good, which is very easy to do actually, Um, because we live very much in the here and now. (laughs) And all of this can seem very distant to us. Um, And, you know, Aquinas recognizes that humans have a tendency to be selfish, right? To just consider ourselves and not consider ourselves in relation to others. And that's another thing I haven't said about happiness yet for Aquinas, but happiness is a common good. And a common good means that it's universal. It's common to us as human beings. It means that it's participatory. It means that we share in it together. Um, And it means that it's not competitive. It means that my going after this good in no way detracts from your going after this good. Um, And I think that's truly essential to thinking about it because then we realize that happiness isn't something that just attaches to me it isn't just about my condition it's not just about me right it's about what we right my happiness is something that i achieve with another
0: yeah and that that's easy to see as a christian you know in christ he's the goal we bonded to one another it would would he even say that, like, on a natural level, like pra- practicing natural virtues, that it's a common, participated...
1: He would, because if you go back to Aristotle, who's a pagan, um, but...
0: Um, he, he did believe in God, though, didn't he? He did believe yeah. in God,
1: yeah. um, but he did not yeah. believe in the Christian God. Okay. Um, yes, Aristotle's God is central mm-hmm. to his system, and if you take it out, the whole thing falls apart. Really? <laughs> so So... Um, so, I'm not trying to deny that. By pagan, I don't mean yeah, atheist. Yeah, the pagans yeah. were not atheists. Yeah. Um, but, um, so for Aristotle, um, the good life is a life of friendship, right? And so, that already suggests, would he, right? Would he say
0: intellectual life than friendship? Or would he put like friendship above like contemplation, intellectual? Yeah. Oh, what
1: a good, hard question. <laughs> um... On my reading of Aristotle, now you're starting to get into you know the disputed. The scholars will dispute this, yeah. um, but on my reading of Aristotle, he's very clear um, that while contemplation is the highest activity you can engage in, it's better when shared with friends, mm. right? So, so if you look at the Nicomachean Ethics, um, it's ten books, two entire books on friendship. Wow, he talks about friendship more than he talks about any other thing. Really? Right. Yes. I and mean, people don't... It's like when you stop to think about it, it's pretty dramatic. Um, and Aristotle's very clear at the beginning of Book 8. He said, no man will call himself happy without friends.
0: It's so, so funny. I just... just my antidote, I When I was in college, I had this really smart guy who was in my classes. He was a friend. We'd studied together with a group. And and he he was a complete atheist. I remember one time he he, ta- he said that. He said a happy life you know you got to have friends yeah and like this guy was the, the biggest computer engineering nerd isolationist you could imagine in many ways you know but i was just so shocked that he he came to that conclusion being in that engineering you know very right. technological world
1: but. yeah and there's um you know there's a crisis of friendship right now yeah. that young people in this country in particular face so i think 25% of millennials report that they have no friends. Yeah. That's um, that's very bad. But also look at the number of millennials who report depression, anxiety, suicidal yeah. thoughts. Um, these two things are not unrelated.
0: why, so the, the thinking, Aristotle's thinking behind the friendship would be that we're like social a- animals. I mean, that's what, it seems like our Christian tradition philosophy recognizes you know, we have the social nature, you know, our social doctrine and things like that that we You know, we're called to live as a people. Yeah, and so
1: what yeah, absolutely Aristotle says that man is a political animal, yeah. right? Um, and for Aristotle that means two things that are fundamentally related one is that we are rational and speak a language yeah. We communicate well communication involves another, mm-hmm. right? right? There's no, um, the only reason that you can talk to yourself is because you can talk to others and you uh-huh. can sort of treat yourself as a second self or something. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the the primary mode is dialogue, communication, um, and the fact that um, language is such that it can't spring into a single person right because language is something that in 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 its very nature um, has to be intelligible to another so um i think that the fact that we're political animals is um related to the fact that we're rational uh linguis- linguistic animals um and so yeah for aristotle that's why friendship is essential we're we're not we're not by our nature meant um, for ourselves, right? We're meant for this kind of communion. And Aristotle also clearly ties the possibility of virtue to friendship. I was gonna say that, yeah, because virtue
0: serves friendship. That's right. If I'm offending my brother all the time, it's gonna be hard to have. That's
1: right, so you can't truly be a friend to another, which is loving the other for their own sake. That's friendship prayer, so it is a kind of love, a loving Mm -hmm. communion. I cannot love you, I cannot be your friend if I don't have virtue, because if I don't have virtue, then when the moment calls for me to defend you, like Mm. I will need courage, right? When the moment comes for me to give you advice, I will need prudence. When that like, I can't will your good and be your friend in a meaningful way Mm. um, unless I have virtue. And so friendship is the context both for the growth of virtue, so real friends help one another make good choices mm-hmm. and grow in virtue, but it's also the place where we exercise our virtues yeah. for Aristotle. So it's absolutely essential for him.
0: So the participated happiness, I you said three things, I think. One is- It's
1: universal, is, it's participated, and it's non-competitive.
0: Yeah, and that, uh, yeah, that we need friends to, Fulfill that happiness and I, I'm thinking of that. Is it from Raphael that did that famous painting? I think it's in the Vatican Museum. So. The School of Athens? Yeah. Yeah. And they're walk. He, who is it? It's Aristotle and Plato walking and talking.
1: Plato, Aristotle. Yeah.
0: yes. And they're talking, all these people around them. And yeah, that's the impression you get with the Greeks. They're always talking. You know, it's not like, you know, doing philosophy by themselves, but it's no, very much No, you can't shared. do philosophy by yourself. <laughs> There's something else, I I don't know if you've studied this. This is, I've never, I've heard this that, you know, in Aristotle, um, that, you know, talking about the differentiation uh, between the sexes, and I was trying to use this like in the argument against gay marriage, that you need that difference for a deeper communion union. Mm -hmm. That, that sexual difference served the complementary differences, mm-hmm. as the church would say today. And um, what was his logic
1: of that? Well, I think Aristotle is not a good source because Aristotle, um, on the one hand, Aristotle basically invented biology. Um, but on the other hand, he misunderstood. So, so in Aristotle's view, um, women are just defective men. Which is not true. <laughs> um, just, a, just from a biological perspective, it's not true, um, and so so he 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 thinks the very concept of a woman just implies a natural uh-huh. defect, um, and I think that's wrong. Uh, that's wrong, both from a scientific perspective and hopefully also from a more spiritual perspective.
0: What um, what, what took him there? Because it just seemed like you know you grew up in a family. You love your mother. She's beautiful. She's tender. She's kind. What would maybe
1: Aristotle's mom was mean.
0: All <laughs> well, comes back to the mother.
1: Right? Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to like give some like Freudian analysis of Aristotle, but, um, but I'm Aristotle... just wondering like how
0: a brilliant person would come because I'm fascinated with that the equal dignity between the sexes and yet so so many differences. You think him being this master perceiver would pick that up, you know? Well, I
1: mean, if you think about Aristotle's time, um, you know, women were barely allowed to leave the house. I mean, they Mm. were just property. Yeah. Um, And so he probably internalized uh, a lot of that, which is easy to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think, um, you know, Stuff about sex and genders gets complicated fast. Mm -hmm. Um, But but definitely, I think Aristotle, I mean, I love Aristotle. I call myself an Aristotelian in some sense. Um, But that's one area where I'm sort of just like, no, he was just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Also, natural slaves, wrong.
0: (laughs) Right. What? And do you know, like his explanation of why in the animal world, you know, we see this this differentiation? And I mean, I guess you could see it for whatever prop- propagation of the species, whatever. But I don't know, there just seemed like there's more mystery underneath it than that i guess i'm trying to get at is
1: you need to ask my husband that question he's, he's, does he's, that study. <laughs> the, he's the he's the Aristotle's scholar and he works particularly on aristotle's biology okay you gotta get him on your podcast.
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just i i find it fascinating because our culture just presents it. you know these two relationships the gay relationship and you know it's just equal and i'm like thinking there's something more deeper about the two genders come together, you
1: know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, um, I'm not sure that we have any cultural consensus about gender, but in the academy, I think increasingly there's acceptance of the idea that gender is socially constructed all the way down. Yeah. So, um, and I, I mean, I think that gender is in many important ways socially constructed. Mm. Um, you know, it's obvious that um, girls wearing pink is just mm. a convention. Mm. And in fact, if you go back 100 years even, it was the opposite. Mm. Um, or men wearing pants is a social convention mm. um, and, and a relatively new one at mm. that. Um, so sure, I think we can talk about um, the difference between nature and convention and social construction, um, but I think the radical thesis that's increasingly accepted as an obvious truth and i think it's not obvious although you have to make a lot of arguments um, because these people are very sophisticated Uh, but the idea is that no it's social all the way down Mm -hmm. um and you know for 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 the ancients and the medievals um one they're just not really thinking about gender like they don't care it's like a minor concept who cares um but secondly um they put it you know like aquinas puts it in the category of accident right um i don't i'm not sure that's gonna work but i haven't like thought about it so much um but i think the real question is um a question about What's really the difference between nature and convention, and how mm-hmm. are we going to draw the lines here? There's clearly conventional and natural aspects to it, mm-hmm. and I think that's where the hard thinking needs to be done.
0: Yeah, let me ask you a question too. I, I was in—I did a footprints of St. Paul, and we stopped at Athens.
1: At, oh wow! Yeah, we did
0: this cruise and went to somewhere like Corinth and. Uh huh. Um, other places i can't even think of right now but uh yeah athens was my favorite place and and uh you know there at the aragopagus he engaged with people but it was the parthenon and Uh and that thing's been blown to smithereens yeah
1: yeah it's been through a lot yeah it's like
0: (laughs) it's a shell of its glory but i remember i went and then that night i went to this incredibly beautiful have you been there? To?
1: I've been to the Acropolis, Yeah, yes. and
0: and they have that, this very modern looking, it's just gorgeous, spectacular museum that overlooks the lighted Parthenon at night. And I remember watching this video there and they talked about, well, the Parthenon is, it springs to life, you know, it's like a living building. And as soon as they said that, it just so resonated with me because there's, you know, they did all these architectural tricks to, there's hardly a, really a flat straight line on it. You know, they bend mm-hmm. stuff and shorten stuff mm-hmm. to give you, to make it, when you look at it from a perspective, that it it just, it just seems like it's a lie, you mm-hmm. know? Because I saw there's a lot of other smaller Parthenon style mm-hmm. and none of them struck me right. like with this thing, did I? Right. you know? I that is incredible. and right. And that, you know, and then you go to that museum and they have all these statues, you know, recreated, you know, they have pieces they they finished them off. And you're looking at like what we call classical architecture. Mm-hmm. Only this was 2000 years before Michelangelo. <laughs> what what about their culture caused this flowering of of philosophy and art? And I was wondering too cuz like the Parthenon all those it was all about gods, you know, it's a temple to the gods. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if that religious motivation which today in our culture we say is crippling art and real philosophy you know there's this very negative connotation that religious has it's backwards it's unreasonable and all this mm. stuff but I'm, i was just wondering have you ever heard anything about that like why this period of 500 bc was so incredible yeah what a great question
1: i mean um so yes there have been several um, interesting important influential studies sort of like um, the one that springs to mind is uh, Werner Jaeger's uh, Paideia so mm-hmm. Paideia is kind of um, the, the Greek concept of, of like education you know what does it mean to properly educate someone and, and for the Greeks that was the kind of enculturalization or something mm-hmm. um, but I mean I can only say, um, you know, f- from my own perspective, being someone who was very taken with Greek philosophy uh, as a young person, uh, really just sort of swept away by by Plato, in particular, um, is that what we what grows out of that period is this kind of um, recognition that. Um, you know the the most important things that we can be after are the things whose value is contained in themselves, right? So um, this this um, pretty hard distinction between an instrumental good and that which is simply good, right? Um, and and you know uh, for the for the Greeks. Um, what what it meant to be a greek right was was very important this idea of culture of participating in something greater than yourself right the the individual for the greek is important but the greek culture is much more important because you couldn't have become an individual without it right i mean you owe your allegiance the greeks had Um, an insight into a very profound truth that I think is increasingly lost to us. And that is that um, I'm only me, right? I'm only a self who can think in the first place because I am born into a society that taught me a language, Mm. that gave me a culture, right? That gave me a place in this world. And and my allegiance, right, is not first and foremost to myself because I depend on, this thing that's, like, greater Mm. than myself. Um, And the ideals, right, that the Greeks were after um, are all ideals that are sort of transcendent in some important Mm. way, like, you know, truth and justice and things like this. I mean, these are ideals that you will sacrifice yourself for, Mm. right, that you will die for, Mm. right, that Socrates died for. Um, And I think that's a very... um, that's a very powerful thing. Um, and, and I think the fact that you can basically trace all of Western philosophy um, back to Socrates and the pre Socratics and this, you know, just this desire to understand. Why? Yeah. Because it's good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know. Yeah. It's not because it makes us more powerful or whatever. It's because it's good. And I think, um, you know, I think, this is, I think this is almost lost to us. I mean, um, you know, f- philosophy is often denigrated as being useless. And I, I, to which I always respond, the best thing about philosophy is that it's completely useless. <laughs> yeah. It's completely yeah. useless. Yeah. It's like poetry. Poetry is also completely useless, right? Yeah. So is art so with everything that is the best in us, mm-hmm. right? It's not, it's not good because it's useful. Right. It's good because it's good.
0: Right.
1: Right. And it's good because it makes us good. It's good because it makes us happy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what is wrong with being happy? It's like somehow, somehow everyone thinks, no, 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 you have to make money. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, that's not going to work out.
0: <laughs> like, studies show um, it, right? and
1: studies show it overwhelming. Yeah, like, yeah. like the data here yeah. is staggering. Yeah. And people, humans are stubborn. Yeah, they are. I'm sure you know. You listen to Confession. <laughs> we are a stubborn kind of thing. Stiff We're just people. like, no, you can, much yeah. money. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know. I have to make something useful. Um, I mean, look, there's all kinds of, I don't, I don't mean to denigrate useful things. Um, but I
0: have an iPhone.
1: I do. (laughs) I do. It's ruining my life. Um, I, I wish I did. Uh, increasingly I just want to throw in the river, but, um, you know, I think people need to allow themselves to make space, make more space for the useless things. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think Franciscanism has a history of that too, You know, celebrating Francis and nature and taking walks. And I remember I struggled a lot with that. I could, I've i always loved nature as a Boy Scout, I loved to do outdoor stuff, loved to hike and everything. But I, I was thinking, I, man, St. Francis, Francis got so much out of nature. I feel like I'm not there, you know? But I guess I've come to, you know, going to seminary, I was in Philadelphia for a year, and they had a beautiful symphony. We went listened to Rachmaninoff culture, mm-hmm. big Russian community, mm-hmm. uh, Rachmaninoff concert, and, uh, and 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 I and I, I like classical music before, but I was just surprised, like like playing pickup basketball, going to the arts, and how that was enriched by faith. That mm-hmm. it did. I don't know if I was explicitly thinking about God, but. There's something about the faith that allows us to draw more out of friendship, you know, out of the arts and through good and the beautiful. And yeah, I
1: mean, I, I I think, for example, um, here in America, uh, we have, um, you know, we have our we have these national parks. Um, which so John Muir, who was the um, immigrant from Scotland, who was really the force of nature behind um, preserving these spaces, um, called them natural cathedrals. Yeah. And his argument for their importance was that human beings need to encounter natural beauty. Right. Um, and they need it for spiritual reasons. Um, and of course, what was he fighting? he was fighting everyone who came in and said, but this is incredibly useful land. We can mine this, we can make money, and this is crazy to just yeah. say, oh, right. like all of Yosemite yeah. we can't yeah. use. And it's actually it's actually a miracle that Teddy Roosevelt listened to John Muir mm. um, because if you think about it, he had every incentive not to listen to him. Yeah. Um, but Teddy Roosevelt was a hunter. He he was a lover of nature. And at the end of the day, he he did believe um, that it was important to the national character. It was important to the American people and the national character that we preserve being. Yeah, yeah. Not for any use, right? Um, and again, I think we're constantly fighting this, yeah. right? Um, I think the overwhelming American zeitgeist or tendency is to think, no, it's useful, right? And and if that's true, beauty is always going to be the first thing to go. But when beauty goes, so does the transcendent, so does your connection with the beautiful, yeah. namely God. And I think it really matters that John Muir called them, uh, you know, our our natural cathedrals.
0: Yeah. I think there's a famous story with John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of famous stories with them.
0: Like they just sat down and admired this flower and Yosemite or something. But um, yeah, we go out the West Coast Walk for Life and I always try to take time to go to Muir Woods. You know, up to, yeah, you know, it's beautiful. It is. It's spectacular. And, and I got to say, even like the whole useful podcast guys are just all about efficiency. They talk about taking time to recharge and you just need some nature time and i guess that was kind of a solution for me is just be gentle with yourself just receive you know take a little walk it doesn't have to be the spectacular scene of beauty but just even the simple things we've got this little woods here and mm-hmm. something the other side of the road you can mm-hmm. watch a sunset i walk in and uh, and just to gently be open to it mm-hmm. just the breeze you know mm-hmm. that it kind of yeah we're around you know screens and work all the time and we're living on cortisol you know you need kind of a refresher and uh but that i also wanted to touch upon I just have a few minutes left that uh, you mentioned poetry i know literature is a big love for you and it is and that connection with philosophy yeah talk about that
1: okay um so i actually have a literature and philosophy and theology podcast. It's called mm-hmm. Sacred and Profane Love. And um, you know, you can find it on SoundCloud or iTunes or all these places where you get podcasts. Um, and of course it's free. And basically um, my podcast will, every episode treats a great work of literature, broadly construed, um, and a bit of philosophy or theology. So I've had episodes on Aquinas and Flannery O'Connor I've had episodes on uh, Bernard Williams and Sophocles, um, but the, but like, why do I do this? Well, I love literature and poetry, but why do I love literature and poetry? Um, because I think that the importance or the value or the role that this has in a human life um, is very, very deep. Um, I don't think the importance of literature is a kind of escapism. Um, or a kind of like downtime, I think that it's about um, coming to a greater understanding of who and what you are, namely a human being. So it's, it helps you come into a kind of self-knowledge. Um, and it also um, contains a lot of very important lessons, right? About how to struggle with your humanity and how to be a human being. Um, And so we're sort of exploring all of these issues in the podcast. Um, So I'll just give like an example. Um, I did an episode on Flaubert's Madame Bovary, which I think is hands down, if not the best, one of the best novels ever written. Um, What is Madame Bovary about? Well, in one sense, it's a book about adultery. But that's not, um, that's not the, that's a very surface level characterization. Mm. Um, It's a book about how um, fantasy and a kind of romantic ideology, um, which we can pick up from the broader culture, can make us incapable of loving anyone, Mm. right? So Emma Bovary um, is frankly incapable of loving anyone because she has absorbed from everyone in her life, including she spent a time in a convent school in France um, where this false ideology of love was only ever reinforced, um, where love is all about uh, passions, right? This is very like passionate sort of thing. And of course, Emma Bovary does not experience this in her marriage. She doesn't experience it as a mother, Right, it's sort of like wives, you know, I have this very humdrum (laughs) kind of existence. I'm not feeling all of these passions. So then she has some affairs, right? Well, she is feeling all these passions, but it doesn't actually translate into the sort of happiness that she Mm -hmm. expected it would, right? From reading all of the books, and this is before movies and TV, I mean, now the problem is exponentially worse. Um, And, uh, anyway, you can see this sort of ideology. You can see it destroy Emma Bovary's life, and not just her life. You know, she destroys her husband's life, her children's life. Um, and when you read this, um, of course, it's a it's it's beautifully written, um, et cetera. But you you come to this realization um, if if you're honest with yourself, I think about how you also, <laughs> right, are susceptible to certain ideologies, probably also certain ideologies of love that are maybe preventing you from authentically loving someone. Um, I mean, Flaubert um, became very famous after writing um, Madame Bovary, uh, which was also banned, which I think is crazy. Mm. Um, by the Catholic Church? It was, yeah, well, it was banned by a French you know wh- whoever the people were oh. in charge of, in France um it wouldn't have been the church at that time okay. but it was it was thought to be an indecent book it is not um but of course decency is a, a ever evolving concept but um yeah it, it was banned um in part because it was talking in an open way about adultery but of course it was in no way um there's not a whiff of the suggestion <laughs> in this novel that adultery like ends well. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does not end well yeah. for Emma Bovary. Um, but you know, when when t- somebody interviewed Flaubert, um, asking him about the novel, and he said something um, really fascinating. He said, "Emma Bovary, c'est moi." That's me, right. Um, now heard in one sense, that's a really funny thing to say. Uh, Flaubert is not a middle-aged housewife in France, uh, but a very famous novelist. Yeah. But I mean, but also he wasn't literally saying, "I am Emma Bovary." I mean, um, he's saying, like, we we're all Emma Bovary. There's a little bit of Emma right. in yeah. all of us, right. um, and and that was the point, right? Um, and so I think good literature. Obviously, there's a lot of bad literature, um, but but really good literature, the stuff of the great books, um, yeah. which you know, *Man and is is certainly a great book.
0: Is it on um, the list officially? Like,
1: well, I don't know. Huh. Is there an official list? <laughs> Who made oh, that list? <laughs> Was
0: it that guy, the American Aristotelians?
1: Oh, uh, Adler. Adler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mortimer Adler. Yeah. I'm not sure if he. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I, I taught in the original Great Books program at yeah. the University of Chicago. We did not read Flaubert, um, but there are tons of great books we couldn't yeah. possibly read because yeah. there's only so <laughs> so much you can do yeah. in an academic year. But um, but yeah. So so my interest in literature is that I think that it it helps us come literature and poetry. Well, I would include the Bible, by the way, as as literature, which you should absolutely read, regardless of whether or not. <laughs> You're a Christian.
0: You're saying that a little bit louder for the yes, podcast. you need to read that. If you want
1: to be a literate person who has any understanding of art, he needs to be reading the Bible. Um, but yeah, um, we we need these stories. It yeah. it helps us come to a better self understanding, and we are impoverished without it.
0: Right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been a, a joy to.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: And I. Well, if we got one minute, let me ask you one <laughs> well, we We didn't mention, uh, like with happiness, uh, the fruit of the spirit, joy. Yeah. And like, you talked about perfect, imperfect. Yeah. Uh, do you have any more to say about that? Like, yeah, because I know of like good, you know, non believers who seem to have a very disciplined life, have a lot of virtue, but sometimes they don't seem like they have a lot of joy, you know, like they don't.
1: Um, yeah. So. Um... I'm not sure if you're asking about the contrast between sort of like people who, so let me, so let, let me say at least this much. One of the things that re- is really striking about Aristotle, um, and certainly when I read him for the first time, this particular aspect of Aristotle really unsettled me. Um, and that is that Aristotle says that the virtuous person does the right thing, right? does it promptly, right? So he doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. he sort of like sees the right thing and yeah. just does it. But he does it with ease and pleasure. So it's baked into the concept of being a virtuous person, that you enjoy this. Mm-hmm. And the contrast for Aristotle is between the virtuous person and the merely self-controlled person. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine someone who knows that they shouldn't have another drink. Yeah. They still really want the other drink and when they now they don't have the other drink but they sort of feel like you know they're missing out kind of grumpy now Mm -hmm. right (laughs) Right. um that's not that's good it's better than having the drink that you ought not to have for sure but that's not virtue that's not Mm -hmm. temperance Mm -hmm. um because if you had the virtue you would enjoy the proper amount and you would be satisfied with that and that just shows how deep it is for aristotle that the excellent life is um, joyful or pleasurable yeah. right and um, if you were if you only remained at the level of self-control um, you have not you're not living well yeah. you're living in a way that's praiseworthy insofar as you're not like a bad person right but you're not an excellent person you fall short mm-hmm. um, because it it just really is a fundamental part of his his vision of the human person that you enjoy this, right? That it's mm-hmm. good, obviously you should enjoy the good. Now, skip ahead about 1500 years to Immanuel Kant, right? Um, That's not and, fun. <laughs> and and, and this, is, this is very much still the way many of us think. Um, Kant has this um, enormously um, interesting contrast between Um, the guy who, um, does the right thing, um, even though it's sort of like painful for him to do, Mm -hmm. um, and the guy who just really likes doing the right thing. And now for Kant, the guy who just really likes doing the right thing, it's easy for him. That's the bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's the person who, like... For whom it's it, it a greater virtue
0: hurts. to struggle Yeah, for it, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I always ask my students this, right? Like, who do you think is the better person? Yeah. And they go with Kant. Mm. And that, I mean, and so that shows me, you know, how far we are from the sort of vision that, you know, somebody like Aquinas would have, yeah. where, um, or, or even, frankly, just go back to the martyrs, right? Who sort of, from all we're told, sort of joyfully went to their death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how can that be? How can yeah. you joyfully go to your death? Yeah. Surely only if you have an abundance of faith, hope, and love. <laughs> right. There's no other way. Yeah. If you did not have those virtues by grace, Yeah. who goes happily to their death, right? Yeah. And that's what's completely missing from Kant's account. I mean, for Kant, it's just morality is all about duty. Yeah. Right? There's no... Virtue is some kind of minor concept, and all it means is strength of will. Yeah. So we have a radically different picture of the moral life.
0: I know some have argued about, like, like, kind of a natural ends to man and a supernatural end. And I guess I'm thinking, like, like practicing theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. And being given the gift of the Holy Spirit, this unsurpassing joy, that that would exceed like the practice of natural virtue. It does. Yeah.
1: Right. But also remember that um, grace perfects and presupposes nature. Right. So, you know, I mean, as a philosopher, that's the level at which I'm working, is the level yeah. of nature. We'll leave we grace to the theologians, but um, I'm trying
0: to pour the Holy Spirit into people's hearts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um,
1: right. But they, but you know, virtue is a kind of preparation for that right, too. Right. Yeah,
0: make way for the kingdom. Prepare the way for the kingdom. <laughs> well, thanks you so much for yeah. speaking.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.